G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Life, Culture and Current Events from a Biblical Perspective, 2020 on Vision. Turning our attention to Africa and the nation of Ethiopia, an assassination has triggered some of the worst ethnic religious violence seen in Ethiopia in recent times. The crisis is far from over with evidence indicating that the violence is being organised with the intent to destabilise the nation. Hey, doesn't that sound familiar? Trying to derail the nation's reform agenda. Well, the assassination took the life of a popular Ethiopian singer, 36-year-old Hachalu Handesa in Addis Ababa, who was shot as he got into his car. Now, it followed the massacre of 19 Christians across 11 districts who are all Orthodox Christians, who were reportedly killed savagely. Young and old were targeted in the killing. Some were hacked to death. Others were stoned and clubbed to death. Well, we're going to talk through some issues here, and you might not be so familiar with what's going on in Ethiopia. It doesn't make the mainstream news every day. We're going to be talking with Elizabeth Kendall, an international religious liberty advocate, uh, analyst and advocate, and Elizabeth serves as Director of Advocacy at Canberra-based Christian Faith and Freedom. She's also an adjunct research fellow at the Arthur Jeffries Centre for the Study of Islam at Melbourne School of Theology. Uh, Elizabeth Kendall, a special welcome back to 2020. Thank you, Neil. Elizabeth, it's not typical that in Australia the mainstream media would report on things that are happening in Ethiopia. But you and I have had conversations now over many years uh, targeting and focusing on different countries throughout Africa and they've got their own challenges. And when it comes to issues of Christianity, Christians often on the receiving end of dramatic persecution. This is another one of those that's come to the fore today. Uh, yes, and you know our, our our media really should take a good look at this because we have, you know, I think we have quite a significant uh, Ethiopian diaspora in Australia. Uh, the the Ethiopian and Eritrean diasporas are spread quite far and wide. Now, the death toll from the um, from those from the riots uh, after the assassination of uh, the singer uh, actually was two hundred and thirty nine total dead. So 239 dead, 300 wounded, and over 3,360 mostly Amhara Christians displaced. And in many places, the killings were not even ethnic-orientated. So it wasn't just that the Oromo people who were... uh, All this took place in Oromia region, and the killers were members of the Oromo Liberation Front. And they just went into a, into a frenzy of ethnic killing. And they were killing Amhara Christians. But in many cases, the, the people who were killed were not even ethnic Amhara. They were Oromo Christians. They were targeted for being Christian. 
And uh, so it's it's really quite a distressing thing. It's not actually even the first time we've seen ethnic religious clashes in Ethiopia. These clashes have been escalating ever since uh, Abiy Ahmed came to power in Ethiopia. And it's really sad because you've got these two different visions for Ethiopia um, at war with each other now, and it's really threatening to pull the nation apart. So the, the vision of uh, Dr. Abiy Ahmed, who happens to be a, a, a Christian, uh, he was raised uh, by a, an ethnic Amhara Christian mother, uh, the youngest son of a Muslim uh, chief, a Muslim Amoro um, chief. And so he was raised Muslim, but he was uh, taught Christianity by his mother. But he is now a convert to Pro- evangelical Protestant Christianity uh, as an adult. And uh, he, is, he is now the Prime Minister of Ethiopia, and his vision for Ethiopia is for Ethiopia to be strong and prosperous, which it can only be if it's united. And all the tribes see themselves as not as tribal people and as members of tribes, but as Ethiopian and members of a strong nation. And this vision is coming into conflict with the vision of the ethnic nationalists, particularly the Oromo ethnic nationalists. This is the largest sort of uh, group within Ethiopia who would really like to tear Ethiopia to pieces and they want uh, basically an independent state for themselves, which is very difficult in a country like Ethiopia. So these two visions are at war with each other and there are forces that have an interest in fueling that division, in fueling the ethnic conflict and it's not good. It really must be resisted. Um, uh, the international community really needs to get behind uh, the Ethiopian government at this point. Elizabeth, interesting when you talk about revolutionary movements, the idea of overthrowing the incumbent power, and when you say that the current Prime Minister is a Christian and that there is a movement against him, the idea of pulling down the social agenda, this is a typical way that revolutionary movements try to change uh, what is the, uh, the, the the way that things that happen in, the, in a nation. What are your thoughts here about, is this something that, you know, you can almost see this playing out just as you can see other revolutionary movements that have moved not only around the world today but throughout history? Oh, absolutely. And, and there's a lot of suspicion that, uh, that Egypt might be fanning and fueling the unrest in Ethiopia. Egypt has long supported the Oromo Liberation Front and so the government of Ethiopia is, has launched an investigation to see to what extent Egypt may have actually uh, contributed to the to the unrest in these uh, this, these recent couple of months, so yeah, it's really really difficult. The thing, the situation in Ethiopia goes right back. It's so complex. You know, you've got this country that is you know it's ancient. It's one of the earliest nations to be you know a Christian a Christian nation. Uh, it's got an ancient history, an ancient history rooted in Orthodox Christianity. But you see, it's also been an, an empire. 
So it, you know, it, its birthplace was in the northern regions of the Tigray and Amara regions, and its capital was in Gondor, up there in the north, in the in the highlands. And the empire expanded from there uh, over the Aromia regions and the southern regions, um, and uh, they took in Addis Ababa, made that the new capital, and that's in Aromia region. And, and you know, about half the Oromia, half the Oromo people are are Muslims. But there's, you know, it, this is this is something that happens when you have an empire that expands, just like the Russian Federation expanded and became a Russian empire. Uh, it, it can cause a lot of issues down down the track, and it takes a lot of work to really build social cohesion. And you need to be able to bring all the people on board with you uh, and show that, they, that there is benefit in being together and strength in being together. Otherwise, you can have a really fractious situation later on. And, of course, people can. there's something there that people can exploit, right? So it, it was exploited in, in uh, the Balkans. It was exploited in other places, and it's now being exploited in Ethiopia. And it can be used to break Ethiopia apart, which would not be a good thing. You know, Ethiopia, way in the days of uh, the emperor, uh, oh, the, um, in the days of Emperor Menelik, uh, he, who was the one who founded Addis Ababa as the capital, in trying to get support from Christian, from, uh, e- from European countries, he pointed out that Ethiopia is a Christian island in a sea of pagans he said but really it's in a sea of islam you look at it it's surrounded by some pretty radical islamic states so it's in a and, sea uh, of islam yeah. and, uh, and there's a big islamic presence within ethiopia but uh, i know that you've mentioned uh, you know the the history that it was in fact so christian in early days and listeners uh, will know the biblical account of philip and the Ethiopian eunuch who would have taken the gospel message back to his home nation of Ethiopia. It's interesting that we might be interested in Ethiopia because of a biblical story uh, almost 2,000 years old and a recognition here that while Christianity can take root in a nation like Ethiopia, it can also be displaced And uh, this is the sort of thing that we can see as we look around the world today, a displacing that happens. Uh, We like the displacement when it goes the other way and things become Christian, but we don't like the idea of displacement when uh, then there's some sort of overthrow happening by a revolutionary movement. But this idea Mm. of going right back 2,000 years, Christians ought to have a heart for Ethiopia today. And, you know, it's really interesting that you mentioned Philip and uh, taking you know, the gospel, going to the Ethiopian uh, eunuch who took the gospel back home, and uh, you know, obviously the gospel then spread amongst the Ethiopian people and was embraced. Um, now, the fact of the matter is, today Ethiopia is one of the countries, like Iran, where Muslims are turning to Christ in quite large numbers. There's a real movement of Muslims to Christ in Ethiopia. So there's a very real sense that there is an intense spiritual battle going on for the for Ethiopia, and yeah, I, I think I think we need to see it very much in that context. The two people who are leading these two different sides, these two different visions, are the Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed, right, 
a, con- a convert to evangelical Protestant Christianity. He's a uh, the prime minister has this vision for a strong united Ethiopia. He was he's the child of a Moro Muslim father and an Amara Christian mother. Now, on the other side of the argument, the leader of the the most significant figure amongst the ethnic nationalists who want Oromia region to to split away or be able to rule itself is a uh, is, is is a Muslim. I'm just trying to get his name in front of me now. I haven't got his name in front of me. But uh, the other, he's a Muslim, and uh, he he is the son of a Muslim Amaro father and a Christian Amara mother, just the same as Abiy Ahmed is. But he has stayed on the road to Islam, and so he is very much supported by Islamic elements. And this really threatens it threatens to it threatens to make life very very difficult for all Amaro in Ethiopia. And the thing that's really interesting is that Abiy Ahmed came to power because the Amoro protest movement, which saw uh, protesters really from all over the country, but led by the ethnic Amoro, protesting the domination and oppression that had been brought upon them by decades and decades of of, uh, heavy-handed leadership from the Tigray uh, ethnic group, a, uh, the small ethnic group of the, the Tigrayans. So they wanted a more representative democracy. They wanted an end to the uh, to the violence in the security forces, which had become really corrupt and would discriminate against other ethnic groups. They protested for years. They paralysed Addis Ababa week after week, and they won. And they brought down the government. The, the prime minister resigned and the, and the government appointed a new leader. The first time in Ethiopia's history, an ethnic Amoro man was, was the prime minister of Ethiopia. So the Amoro people should really see that they have won. All things they protested for, they have achieved. And yet this, this movement continues, this violent movement. Now, it's really interesting, too, that the singer, the singer who was killed, Huchala Hundesa, was ethnic Amoro, but he was Christian. And so the whole idea that the Christians should be responsible for his death was bizarre. It seems to have been really that he was he was killed by Amoro uh, militants. And it's tr- it, w- it became the trigger for these riots. But he himself was a Christian who supported the reforms of Abiy Ahmed for a strong, united Ethiopia. If Ethiopia, if Ethiopia collapses into chaos and is divided up along ethnic lines, it will be absolutely catastrophic. And I, I can't sort of emphasise that enough. It would be catastrophic. And all through the Amoro regions... Um, you know, they are very mixed. There's a lot of intermarriage uh, between the Amara and the Amoro. So it's not that you can just draw a line in Ethiopia and put all the all the Amoros on one side and all the Amaras on the other, Muslims on one side, Christians on the other, because they're very mixed. They're very, uh, you know, they've got 200 years worth of mixing here. 
ethnic mixing, religious mixing, to suggest that you can just separate them. It's a recipe for ethnic cleansing and catastrophe, which is what we saw in the riots uh, in in the end of June and in early July. And it's why you say that things mm -hmm. are far from over. In fact, we might Mm -hmm. not even be talking about this today if it wasn't for the assassination of the well-known singer because in some sense that's the headline, isn't it? And that lets us in on the deeper issue that's at hand. As you say, 239 dead, another 300 wounded. And what has eventuated from that, uh, more than 3,000 Christians now displaced and then trying to find some refuge, uh, a refuge in the churches. And so you've got a a wedge that's being driven uh, amongst the people, as you say, and they're already mixed, a mix of Christian and Muslim and the wedge that's there, but now Christians seeking to find some sort of refuge uh, because fears, no doubt, that the uh, assassinations, that the the deaths of Christians will continue. Absolutely. And the the thing that I think I feel quite strongly about now too is um, apart from from explaining the danger that, that is inherent in a breakup of Ethiopia, we need to understand some of the propaganda and the lies that underpin Egypt's claim to basically own the Nile. So Egypt is saying, Egypt. the one reason why Egypt is uh, supports the Amoro Liberation Front and could be very well fostering and backing the unrest in Ethiopia with the hope of bringing down the Abbey government is because Ethiopia has this claim to the Nile, that it it's basically owns the Nile, that Egypt and the Nile are synonymous, and that if there's any threat to the level of the Nile, it threatens Egypt's very existence, that it's not true. Now, Egypt is saying, Egypt wants to bring down the government of Abiy Ahmed because it's not happy with Ethiopia's grand renaissance Oh, hang on, good. Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam, G-E-R-D, the GERD, Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam. This dam is in Ethiopia at the headwaters of the Blue Nile, and it basically will become a, 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 a massive dam that will regulate the flow of the Blue Nile and produce massive amounts of hydroelectricity. Ethiopia is one of the poorest countries in the world and the ethnic Amara, the Christians, are the poorest people in the country of Ethiopia. Not the Amoro, the Amara are the poorest people in this poorest country. So the dam, this massive big dam, the GERD, the the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam, promises to lift about, you know, 100 million Ethiopians out of poverty. And it promises to bring cheap electricity, not just into Ethiopia, but into Sudan and Eritrea and Somalia and other places. It also, it also promises to regulate the flow of the Blue Nile so that Sudan's Blue Nile state is not routinely flooded by Blue Nile waters. Now, Egypt is saying we can't allow this to happen. We, we, don't, we don't believe that Ethiopia will be honourable and we're going to end up with not enough water. But it's actually not true. And on my, 
I've got a prayer bulletin, uh, my Religious Liberty Prayer Bulletin of the end of July. So it's the July update, RLPB 560, the July update. I've included a map which shows how where the, where the groundwater is located in Egypt, in, not in Egypt, but in, in the whole of Africa. And North Africa has some of the largest um, reserves of groundwater in the world, mostly from between Egypt and Libya. Now, Colonel Gaddafi tapped it. He started work on the uh, Great Man-Made River in the 1980s, and now the Great Man-Made River, which taps into these aquifers, gives Libya 70% of its fresh water. Egypt has never done this, but it has just, I think it even has greater supplies than what Libya has. Okay, e- so Ethiopia does not have this, but Egypt does have other water supplies. So its complaints are built on a lie. And so, I think this really needs to be pointed out. Wow, water disputes. And uh, yeah. we're familiar with those that happen here in Australia too, around the Murray-Darling Basin and uh, water that flows from the north through to the south. And so there's water disputes that are going on in Africa. But as you say, Elizabeth Kendall, water disputes here perhaps unfounded and may actually be the excuse for religious ethnic violence. We'll continue this conversation in just a few moments and we'll talk about a church response to what's happening in the nation of Ethiopia. A biblical perspective on life, culture and current events. This is 2020 on Vision Christian Radio. Wonderful to have you with us, uh, stretching this conversation a little further than we ordinarily do in this particular part of our uh, program on 2020. Elizabeth Kendall is our guest. Uh, We're devoting a little bit of time talking about something you won't necessarily hear of uh, perhaps in our mainstream media, but there's a development that's happening in the African nation of Ethiopia. 239 dead, 300 wounded, more than 3,000 Christians who are displaced, seeking refuge in the churches. Uh, All sorts of things going on behind the scenes. Water rights being disputed. The idea of another nation that is influencing the politics in Ethiopia around water water rights on the Nile. And uh, Elizabeth Kendall, uh, let me just ask you about the Christian church at this time and the sorts of things that they are saying out of Ethiopia. You've got an archbishop there who's quite vocal. Uh, what are the churches saying about the clashes? Well, Archbishop uh, Haboon Henok, uh, his diocese in, is in West Arsi zone of Oromo region. So that's just sort of a little bit south uh, east of Addis Ababa. And this is an area where there's been quite considerable hostility towards the church. So I, I don't fully understand it. Maybe there are some slightly more radical mosques in the area uh, that might have stirred up some anti-Christian hostility in that area. But they were hit particularly, uh, particularly hard. And um, he points out that they've lost, uh, they've lost, uh, you know, businesses, 934 businesses. They've lost schools. They've lost uh, nearly 500 homes. And virtually all of these belonged to Christians. Not all of them were ethnic, more um, ethnic um, Amara Christians, but most were. But some of them were ethnic Amaros who just happened to be Christians, and they were targeted, specifically targeted 
because they were Christians. So there's a really, um, there's an un, there's a very disturbing element of not just ethnic cleansing, but ethnic religious cleansing as well. And I think this comes from the fact that the, um, that uh, Jawa Muhammad, the leading Oromo nationalist leader, is himself a fundamentalist Muslim who has promoted, uh, verbally has promoted in his speeches, you know, the ethnic cleansing of, of Christians and uh, the, the rise of Islam amongst the Amoro. But, you know, God is at work here and there is a really big spiritual battle taking place and the church needs to pray for the church, uh, for the church in Ethiopia. Elizabeth, you're something of an expert on the religion of Islam from our Christian perspective. When you've got a population the size that Islam is in the nation of Ethiopia, uh, we might tend to say as Christians, why can't we all live in peace? But this is not something that's at the heart of Islam. I wonder if you've got any uh, deeper insight into uh, how this sort of thing can happen and what drives the Islamic people in this context uh, to actually want to do a revolution because uh, they feel like they can't be under the rule of someone who is a Christian. Well, that's part of it. So that's all part of the radicalization of Islam in recent decades. So since the Islamic revolution in Tehran and since the, the siege of Mecca in, in Saudi Arabia, where we've seen a real, mostly Saudi-driven um, revival of fundamentalist Islam. And so in regions where Christians and Muslims have lived together, I mean, both Abiy Ahmed and Jawa Muhammad, their parents were both a Muslim father and a Christian mother. There, there was lots of intermarriage. People had lived quite happily amongst each other. They'd shared their villages. They'd shared their homes. They were friends. And now, now that Islam has become more radical and uh, people are being, Muslims are being radicalized through local mosques and uh, it's changing the dynamic in, in many countries, uh, Ethiopia included. In fact, just in my, in my last prayer bulletin, the last one I did just last week was on Nigeria and I included a little a picture there of a of a lady who is 93 years old and her entire family had been wiped out through the latest bout of Fulani violence. She's 93. Her 11 children were all killed and I, I think probably most of their children and so her grandchildren, great-grandchildren as well. And she just laments and she says, why am I even alive? You know, you hear this, it made me weep. I was weeping as I was writing it. But she makes the point, she said, I never dreamed that I could wake up one day and the, and the Fulani, who we have lived with, you know, forever, we've lived side by side for decades and being friends with each other, I never thought they would, they would do this to us and drive us out of our homes. And, and this is the same sort of thing that's happening now in, in Ethiopia. So you've got people who have lived together for a long, long time, shared the villages, intermarried, and all of a sudden now through the rad Saudi Arabian-driven radicalization of Islam, through the mosques, uh, through the madrasas, they're radicalizing the Muslims and things are beginning to tear apart from within. And... Uh, that's really, really awful. So the government has to, if the government wants to 
change uh, to change the culture amongst the Muslims there. They have to get rid of this Saudi Arabian Wahhabi Islam and encourage people just to, in, in a first instance, go back to a culture of tolerance, a culture of living harmoniously together and uh, maybe to be a little bit less influenced by what's coming out of Saudi Arabia. And that can be a first step back away from, away from the brink. I know it's eye-opening for a lot of people listening into our conversation today who are familiar with uh, when you've got the fact that it's a United States election year and a lot of the controversy and uh, thoughts around uh, the idea of China or Russia's influence uh, on American elections and uh, everybody wanting to resist this influence that comes outside. And we think of that in a sense of political influence. But what you're describing is the sort of religious influence that comes from places like Saudi Arabia. And mm. uh, even uh, when we talk about Egypt, and people might have their own thoughts on, on Egypt and the sort of religious influence that might be coming from leadership there because that's uh, particularly sort of more secular in, in my understanding. But these influences coming upon a nation like Ethiopia to bring about some regime change. But it's a, a religious focus, not just a political one. Absolutely. And this has been one of the great big fundamental blind spots of the West that continues to um, to back like Islamic forces in Syria, for goodness sake, and, and continues to um, not stand against the actual ideology. Way back, way back when um, when America was considering, you know, regime change in Baghdad to remove Saddam Hussein, Russia intervened, or Russia objected, and the Russians said Saddam is not primarily the problem. The big problem is the radicalization of Muslims through the work of Saudi Arabia, the, the Saudi promotion of radical Islam. That's what we need to be putting our attention to. And I would agree because, you know, you can put out these little spot fires here or there, or you can, um, I think we're doing a good lot of work in flaming them, to be honest, but the, the real source, the, the source of the problem is Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia and the the clerical regime in Tehran, they are just they are spewing out the most violent, intolerant, uh, fundamentalist radical Islam, and they are radicalizing the Muslim masses. They are pulling Muslims behind themselves by saying we're going to do this, we're going to do that, and um, and Turkey as well. Turkey is the same Muslim Brotherhood, you know, supporting Turkey. They're all clamoring, the three of them, clamoring to be the leaders of the Muslim world. And, uh, and they're drawing Muslims in behind them and they're promoting the most radical, violent, intolerant, uh, you know, fundamentalist Islam. And that's where it needs to be cut off at the source, at the, at the funding, Saudi Arabian funding of madrasas, the funding of mosques, all around the world, the funding of chairs of Islamic studies in our Western universities, the funding of, our, of, of whole departments in our universities that are now, not only do our universities receive funding from China and therefore refuse to entertain criticism of China, of the Chinese Communist Party, 
We've seen plenty of that in the media lately. They also receive funding from Qatar and from the United Arab Emirates and from Saudi Arabia. And because of that, they refuse to entertain criticism of Islam. They also get a, a propagandistic uh, message of Islam being promoted through the universities, just like you get a propagandistic message of China promoted through the Chinese departments and the Confucians. It's really drastic. We, we, need to, we need to tackle this. Elizabeth, it is eye-opening to hear your insights into that. Let me just bring this close to home here and ask you, and because you do deputations and submissions and you'll speak before uh, all sorts of gatherings and inquiries with regards to these things, uh, does our Australian foreign affairs uh, have a influence when it comes to things that are going on in Ethiopia? I wouldn't really know, to be honest, and things have been pretty quiet this year because none of our our, our officials at Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade seem to be, well, they haven't been calling, they certainly haven't been calling for uh, submissions on any bilateral talks. They're not having bilateral talks, as far as I know, unless they're having Zoom talks and they're not. They're not asking for submissions. So it's almost like so under, the, under the cover of coronavirus. So this is another one of those things that continues to perpetuate. Exactly. And uh, no one's talking about it. Uh, governments are hibernating and uh, therefore not speaking into these situations. So when you've got uh, serious situations developing in places like Ethiopia, uh, there is no one at the wheel or, or there's an asleepness at the wheel. Elizabeth, we have Absolutely. run out of time for our mm-hmm. conversation today. Uh, always appreciate your insights. And there'll be some listeners uh, who are going to be saying, I need to hear more about what's going on in Ethiopia. And let me point people to how you can do that. Uh, simply go to elizabethkendall.com. And uh, that'll be a page where you'll be able to get into the latest religious liberty prayer bulletins and you'll be able to read some articles and things that Elizabeth has written as insights into the things that are developing in the nation of Ethiopia and uh, to take, take us that step deeper into why is this happening? Where is that funding coming from that's stirring up all of the unrest against Christians and fueling the idea of revolution, Islamic revolution in nations around the world? Uh, Elizabeth Kendall, uh, do always appreciate your great insights. Uh, Elizabeth Kendall, uh, who's a religious liberty analyst and advocate, also serves as Director of Advocacy at Can- the Canberra-based Christian Faith and Freedom. Simply Google Christian Faith and Freedom for some insights there. Elizabeth, thanks so much for sharing your thoughts and your heart with us today on 2020. Thank you, Neil, and pray, pray for Ethiopia. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.